I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm honored to welcome to the podcast writer-in-residence for the Knight Institute at Columbia, Christian Farias. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Alex. Uh, Let me ask you, as we sum up this Supreme Court period, I want to ask you specifically about the tax cases, but overall, I think there's a misrepresentation of this most recent series of decisions being more favorable to liberal or progressive agendas. Uh, do, do you see some kind of misinterpretation of what transpired over these past weeks? Yeah, I mean, at this time of the year, there's a tendency of viewing every major decision, and for better or for worse, the Supreme Court tends to reserve all of those blockbuster cases for the very end of the term. We tend to view them uh, as either liberal or conservative wins, and because We have a very conservative court with a median justice, which at this moment would be Chief Justice Roberts. Wherever he goes, the court goes. So wherever his vote is cast, that's either uh, with the four more liberal justices or the four more conservative justices. That's how we determine the outcome of the cases. But some of these uh, rulings, including the ones that were issued today, are are very nuanced. Uh, And in a sense, uh, you could perhaps say they're a result of a lot of compromise perhaps behind the scenes because they're not watershed liberal decisions, even though uh, in some cases it does seem as if the outcome itself is more progressive. But when you read between the lines or when you read the language of the opinions, they're they're much more subtle than that. Would you say that it, it really is Chief Justice Roberts who would have determined in getting the 7-2 majority on the tax cases that, you know, to, to rule in a way that followed the, the dictate, as he says in the decision of Justice Marshall, um, that no man or president is above the law, but, but not to require that to be implemented with any immediacy. Um, it, it, is, it is he who really would have made that determination in, in writing the majority opinion, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whatever, whoever has the controlling judgment, whoever has the controlling idea of how the case should come out, that's how then the votes line up. And here it seems also because the cases are high profile, whoever has the majority, especially if the chief is in the majority, he is the one who gets to assign the opinions. So it turns out that for this term, uh, both in the tax and financial records cases, and other major controversies, uh, Roberts decided to assign the case to himself. Uh, on the one hand, because perhaps he thought that he had the better argument rather than some of his other colleagues, uh, but also because he has a way of writing things in a way that are, you know, I don't want to say ambiguous, but at least not as sweeping as they could be. Although he can be sweeping himself, depending on the issue, uh, but. Uh, at least in some of the biggest cases, including uh, the financial records cases, uh, even though both cases were in a sense a defeat for Trump, they're written in a way where the litigation will continue. And uh, for all practical reasons, uh, it would seem that the American public won't get to see these records released publicly, or at least have a knowledge of what they are or what they contain ahead of the November election. So it was really a one-man decision to remand the, the cases to the lower court in, in the sense of um, determining precisely how 
and under what legal circumstances um, the subpoenas will be heated uh, with respect to New York City. Um, it seems like that might be a faster route for the district attorney of New York City to um, allow the grand jury to see the, the tax records um, than, than it will be for, for Congress uh, potentially to have those records under its uh, jurisdiction. But, you know, when we think about this historically versus the, the relative counterpart, which is the Nixon case and presidential records from that era, what, what do you think about this moment did not allow for the sort of immediacy in, in restoring the democratic norm of, you know, a um, president complying with a subpoena from Congress or um, the Donald Trump or Trump business entities having to comply with the subpoena or a, a grand jury request for materials? I mean, what is it about these two cases that, that lacked the same immediacy for John Roberts to, to not kind of recognize that democracy is imperiled in the same way it was then? Sure, I think what, what makes these cases different from those uh, in history, uh, whether it's the Nixon Tapes case or the Clinton v. Jones case from the 90s, is the person who sits in the Oval Office and that person is Donald Trump. Uh, it, 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 John Roberts said in, in, in Mazars, the, the congressional subpoenas case, that it, this was basically a case of first impression where you have a private party, the president, uh, suing to block a third party, which is his financial institutions, those holding the records, from complying with a duly enacted subpoena. And, uh, and, uh, and that in itself is what makes these cases different. In prior occasions, uh, you know, you had the president trying to challenge uh, a criminal uh, request for executive materials that were in the White House. So it was a clearer constitutional clash between uh, two different branches of government. But here you have a person in his personal capacity stonewalling. And I think, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, the justices had to kind of look away a little bit and squint really hard and pretend that here is just uh, someone acting within the bounds of his office doing what presidents do, when in reality, uh, what you see is someone who, from day one, even from the moment that, uh, you know, uh, the House of Representatives uh, became a democratic majority, they said, you know, we're going to block all the subpoenas. We're not going to comply with any subpoenas. And, and, and that mentality has carried on uh, from April of last year when the subpoenas were first issued until he went to court. And I think uh, because of the unprecedented nature of these cases, uh, the court had to go the way it did. There's truly never been a president like Trump. And, uh, and, and at least we can rest assured that the principle that no man is above the law was upheld today. Uh, and, uh, but yes, it is true that it does feel a little bit like uh, a bit of a disappointment because there won't be that immediate uh, sort of reaction or that immediate turning over of papers uh, on the one hand to Congress, but also to New York prosecutors, because uh, the prosecutor has the duty under state law to not release materials that it receives from, uh, from a grand jury. Th those are secret by law. So he has to comport to those rules. Uh, by he, I mean, I mean the Manhattan District Attorney, Cy Vance. Um, and, uh, 
So yeah, and when you see the example of Nixon, you know, he resigned shortly after the tapes were ordered turned over uh, to the, the Washington special prosecutors. So, so the, the, definitely this time around, that drama is absent from these controversies. Uh, Christian, would you say that um, in a more analogous situation, it would have been, if not tapes, records of conversations that were in the auspices and known to be in the auspices of the executive branch that were requested, and that that situation might have had more of a logical precedent with the Nixon tape case, whereas if you're looking at a whole history of Trump and Trump enterprise business records and tax returns, that that, that presents a different um, you know, a, a, different, a different entry point into the, the sort of evidence and the connection to the, the White House and um, the public's right to know, the, the situation would have been more analogous to the Nixon case had those records been in the Oval Office in some yeah. way. Yeah, absolutely. And which is why also it's interesting that there's a separate case uh, that will be her next term dealing with uh, the Mueller report and some uh, redacted materials in the Mueller report and some grand jury materials that haven't been released by the executive branch that are exclusively in the possession of the executive branch. That presents a, a totally different issue and it'll be interesting when the court hears that. Uh, but here I think also, uh, thinking of the bigger picture, the Supreme Court also is concerned. The Supreme Court, you know, the justices who weren't born yesterday, they're really mindful of not just the reality of the current occupant of the White House, but they're thinking of future occupants of the White House and future Congresses and future majorities that may be, uh, you know, more perhaps cynical or vindictive, or they may be worried about uh, a future uh, McCarthy era, who knows, uh, just Congress going on fishing expeditions, going after private citizens, uh, going after political opponents for no reason. So they're trying to at least carve out uh, some kind of a rule. and. Uh, by rule, I mean something that the courts can apply moving forward to cabin Congress and to cabin the executive too, uh, because Donald Trump obviously is not going to be with us forever and neither is the current Congress. And, uh, you know, you, you, they have to kind of safeguard the Republic, if you will, for our children. And one way of doing that is to uh, make sure that the branches stay confined to their lawful powers and that they don't go beyond that. But they're doing it because, again, they're thinking of the long term. They're thinking of perhaps a future President Joe Biden or thinking of a future Republican majority in the House. And, and we've seen how that has happened, what, ha what that has done, uh, both when Obama was in office or when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. And, and, and we've seen some of those hearings uh, that go on for a very long time. And who knows, maybe uh, today's ruling uh, prospectively uh, is better off for the rule of law uh, than what than what we can see or feel immediately. And specifically with respect to the Vance case, how soon will that grand jury be able to access those records? I and mean, secretly, as you say. Yeah. So it's interesting because it's from reading the opinion, it seems like uh, the process will continue pretty expeditiously. Uh, obviously, there are uh, the 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 court makes some. Uh, comments about additional arguments that Trump may have to cabin that request somewhat in the event that uh, 
you know, if it's a malicious prosecution or if it's done with a bad faith purpose. Um, uh, but it seems as though, you know, for the most part, this was a defeat uh, for the president. And it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see to what extent uh, those, uh, I guess, remaining disputes will drag on in the courts. Because in that case, he's proceeding uh, in his personal capacity. He is the one suing to quash a grand jury subpoena. And any citizen has that right to try to quash a subpoena. But the standards for that are, are very high. And so long as the prosecution is in good faith and it's properly predicated and it is not being carried out for a vindictive purpose, but for a legitimate one, uh, I don't see how uh, he will have much luck in that. But even then, you know, say these records were to be turned over tomorrow, which is not going to happen. But if they were, uh, Cy Vance and his grand jury will be sworn to secrecy. They, by law, would be barred from leaking any of it uh, because it would just be illegal or it would just vitiate the entire prosecution. Uh, but at least, uh, at least those who care about these things, uh, people who uh, look to uh, prosecutors or law enforcement agencies to do justice in the sense of bringing wrongdoers uh, to account, you know, they can rest assured that if Trump loses and indeed there is something incriminating in those records that are worthy of some kind of a prosecution that on the day he uh, leaves office that, you know, nothing stops uh, Cy Vance or even federal prosecutors from moving forward with pending charges that they may have up their sleeve. Uh, Christian, I want to ask you more broadly about the restoration of, of law. Um, you have a unique insight into this, um, looking at the Chilean experience in the plebiscite that was intended to oust a dictator, uh, Pinochet, and um, basically usher in reforms that would um, bring about human rights and, and democracy and, and reconciliation. Um, how do you think of what Donald Trump has done to the presidency uh, in the context of, of democratic norms and the restoration of, of law um, you know, looking at what was advanced in Chile in the 90s, um, how much of, of what we will need to do in the wake of Trump is, is a sort of reminds you of that period there? Yeah, I mean, I was born in what was technically at the time a dictatorship in Chile. I was born in the early 80s. I'm a child of the 80s. Uh, and Chile was still under, under dictatorship by Augusto Pinochet. And, and as a result, you know, I, I kind of uh, was a little kid as Chile was transitioning to democracy. And, and, and interestingly, you know, Chile is still kind of undergoing the growing pains, uh, still 30 year, more than 30 years later from that process. Uh, and right now they're in, in, in the middle of a constitutional moment, if you will, because they want to totally revamp the constitution that Pinochet left behind and they want to start from scratch because there's a longstanding belief that that uh, old constitution uh, upholds inequality. It's the root of many evils in terms of social justice, economic inequality, uh, and the rich and the powerful getting richer and more powerful. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's definitely that constitutional spirit there. Uh, as far as comparing what Chile is going through to what uh, the United States is going through with Trump, it is certainly true that 
uh, Trump has lit up in many people a desire for uh, just restoring the rule of law. Because at first blush, when you look at uh, just the breakdown of norms, the breakdown of institutions, the breakdown of cooperation with the branches of government, uh, you know, when you see a president just declaring an emergency declaration on a whim, and I'm not talking about his emergency declaration dealing with COVID, but something like an emergency declaration dealing with uh, quote unquote emergency at the border, which then gave him free reign to uh, basically take money from the treasury that Congress never appropriated for building a border wall. Uh, and then seeing that money that belongs to all of us go to a wall that Congress never approved of, you know, that, that's like the ultimate constitutional violation there, you know, when, and, and then seeing the courts being powerless to stop this project that, uh, you know, however you look at it, it it's lawless. It, it, it truly feels as if you're kind of at the end of the rope and there's nothing you can do. Uh, but what I do hope that this moment uh, in history uh, here in the U.S., uh, you know, putting aside just the democratic spirit that has set in and more people wanting to vote and uh, more people protesting uh, for racial equality and all those wonderful things that you see in the streets, people awakening to the condition that this country is in, you know, you just hope that people kind of can look back at, at the past few years and see how we can improve on those things that we've already improved upon for the past 40 years uh, because, you know, what, talk about Nixon when he resigned from office in disgrace, that ushered in a new era of accountability, of uh, empowered Congress, of a diminished presidency. Uh, because again, the presidency had shown to be a failure at the time. And so Congress had to reassert a lot of that power and a lot of that leadership. Uh, but unfortunately, it seems like the pendulum has swung. And in the past decades, we've forgotten about the power of oversight and accountability and legislation to take care of issues. And, and, we've, and because Congress, in a sense, has become dysfunctional and, and partisan and hasn't taken an interest in the needs of everyday people, you know, you see that gridlock and you see that it seems as, a, as if a lot of uh, the changes have to depend on a powerful executive rather than a powerful Congress that has the power of the purse, that has the power of passing legislation, that has the power of truly solving the problems that are facing this nation. And Congress uh, in the past few months has stepped up to the plate. I mean, we've seen it with the pandemic, uh, although it's not perfect, uh, there has been sweeping legislation to deal with the challenges of COVID, at least economically speaking. And But you just hope that structurally, you hope that uh, in terms of checks and balances, that this moment and the Trump era just uh, leads to the country and the nation to look inward and to, to think, hey, wait, wh where can we improve on all of these things that Trump seems to have exploited because we didn't have laws and we didn't have rules. We simply had norms that he just went ahead and smashed. But where can we make the system that we currently have, this fragile system stronger so that the abuses and the excesses of the past few years don't happen again. You know, where can we look to fix this? And so I hope that if anything, if there's anything to learn from Chile and then apply to this current moment is to see where, barring a constitutional <laughs> amendment or convention, where can we legislatively move ahead and, and, and ushering just a new awakening to, to checks and balances in the rule of law.
That's so helpful. And it's also helpful you point out the constitutional dilemma because more and more Americans are waking up to the fact that the Constitution emboldened or enabled our original sin from the outset. It has been updated. But what you said about Chile's constitution, as constitution and constitutional reform is being considered in places like Japan and Russia, in, in some cases in, in legitimate fashion with the people represented, in some cases illegitimately, that, that we, we go back to that central question of, of voting rights and, in, and securing the blessings of liberty and representative democracy. And th- there are, with this particular Supreme Court, and with Chief Justice Roberts at the helm, folks, and I think an increasing number of folks who would say that the constitutional reform is demanded because of the failure of the Civil Rights Act and the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments uh, to really be implemented in American society. And so I, I wonder how you relate to that question of a, a, a constitution that that is... Um, not um, blessing the people with that with that liberty uh, is it more likely in your estimation, Christian, that legislation like HR one um, would sufficiently tackle those problems, or that either an expansion of the court or constitutional reform, like what you're describing in Chile, would be necessary to um, ensure that voting rights, for instance, are protected in this country. Yeah, uh, there's a, uh, yeah, in Chile, the situation is a bit different because, yeah, the Constitution is still hard to change in Chile, but it has been amended several times, even after Pinochet left power. Uh, but what the nation and society realized in the past few months, beginning this past October, when there were incredible protests and social unrest in Chile, is that the system is unsustainable in many ways, even before the pandemic. And the protests were getting so rowdy and so even scary for many politicians that many of them felt like the nation was uh, almost um, vanishing before their eyes and that they were about to lose power because, again, uh, it almost seemed as if the nation was on the brink. And, um, And that's why the politicians said, all right, we need to start from zero. People are demanding a new constitution. We need to listen or else. And they really felt that pressure. I don't think I've seen that pressure here yet, even though uh, you know, Trump has given uh, many of us reason to doubt our constitutional commitments and what our constitution stands for. Um, but yeah, there needs to be a true national reckoning to see that the failures of racial injustice and inequality and police brutality and in all these structures that simply entrench uh, poverty and, and just these, all these social differences are rooted in, 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 in the constitution itself. And, and I don't think anyone yet has drawn that parallel between all of those social ills and the constitutional rot at the center of, of a lot of this. So, um, and, and so absent that, without that constitutional spirit, if you will, to change a lot of those things, you do have to resort to legislation uh, and you do have to resort to the laws. And thankfully you do have laws like what you just mentioned, HR1 and others that have been gathering dust because of the Senate's own inability to bring these votes for a passage because they care more about judges than, than laws to help people. 
but yeah, so uh, depending on what happens in November and what- and, and, not, and not just any judges, judges who specifically contradict the premise of HR1, which is it's okay to purge voters, you know, based on geography, based on ethnicity, based on not voting. It's okay to um, not allow there to be um, sufficient voting centers, poll sites, you know. So it's the judges who are directly in opposition to the, the, the basic merit and, and proposition of HR1. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, judges that are very ideological, very conservative in nature, unlike any crop of judges that I personally have seen since I've been covering law and justice issues, and, uh, and because they're very different, uh, you know, and, and you've seen already some of the rulings that they're truly uh, just extremely, extremely uh, committed to the Republican idea of what the Constitution should be. Uh, but, but laying that aside, I mean, uh, yeah, judges will stand in the way of many of whatever legislative victories are passed in the years ahead. So, you know, it's, it's truly uh, a moment where people should ask, you know, what kind of country do we want? And if they truly want change and want difference and they're tired of the status quo, uh, putting aside a constitutional amendment, if they believe the law can help, then, you know, they should vote. And they Last should. question, Christian, uh, and, and again, thank you for your insights today. It could happen here. I mean, what you saw in Chile, I think, was experienced in the first wave of protests and the looting that we experienced in a lot of metropolises around this country. I mean, it, it must have occurred to you during that period that it, it can happen here. It could happen here. Yeah, absolutely. It could happen here. And, and the point of reform and change is to transform that political unrest into political change. Uh, yes, you have to vote. Uh, I mean, you have to. You, you have a right to express that political dissent and opinion that the Constitution protects. But the Constitution also protects your right to vote. And if you want that dissent to become the majority, you know, to borrow some of the language of what the Supreme Court uses, uh, you know, you have to make that voice heard at the ballot box and and push for candidates and people who will enact those policies that you think will help the nation. And so long, and if there's a, a strong enough majority, uh, you know, then you hope that the Congress will move ahead and make the change that you desire to see in the world. Christian Farias, writer in residence at the Knight Institute at Columbia. We're honored to host you as we did some of your colleagues at that institute, David Posen, Katie Fallow, Jamil Jaffer, of course. Thank you for being on with me today. Thank you so much, Alex. It was a pleasure talking to you.